Bayern. We're all bad here on Fashion by Dad. As the night starts to bleed in today, we say goodbye to the vampires, clubbers and insomniacs and good morning to the early risers and those of you on your early morning commute. In this episode, the Metadad tells the much-anticipated tale of the chook and the Afghan hound on the road to Broken Hill. And the phone's already ringing hot with anticipation. Callers have variously predicted that the tale concerns the mythical pharaoh rooster, or possibly Rooster Park in northern New South Wales. It does not. However, both those stories might be worth telling. First, though, before we get to the chook and the Afghan hound, 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 Afghan hound, hound, on the road to Broken Hill, this episode of Fashion by Dad takes a detour to Jerusalem. That detour involves a series of tracks, musical tracks from the 18th century until 2021. That's this year, dear listener, all longing for the ideal of the holy city. And those tracks will be interspersed with readings from Simon Seabag Montefiore's biography of both the mythical and the physical place. Fat little book described as a number one bestseller, Jerusalem, by Jerusalem, the biography. And uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore is the great-grand-nephew of the Seabag Montefiore who helped negotiate the state of Israel in British Parliament in the 19th century and now has a suburb of Jerusalem named after him. In fact, this episode's blazer of glory is set in the Outremer period, the period between the Second and Third Crusade when the Knights Hospitaller got along with the Muslim rulers of Jerusalem. Just imagine... Uh, this episode ain't necessarily the so, of course, is the story of the chook and the Afghan hound. Anyway, to kick off our Jerusalem theme, here is Alpha Blondie with his take on Jerusalem. <laughs> And that was Alpha Blondie. Sedo Korn, born January the 1st, 1953, is a tad older than your metadad here. Uh, he's better known by his stage name. He's from the Ivory Coast, described as an Ivorian reggae singer and international recording artist. Many of his songs are politically and socially motivated and are mainly sung in his native language of Diola, French and English. So, 
He occasionally uses Hebrew, and there was a smattering of those languages in his rendering of Jerusalem. And we're playing tracks with uh, the title Jerusalem about the land of Israel because um, today's time for a story time story, the blazer of glory are all set in Jerusalem. Simon Seabag Montefiore starts his biography of Jerusalem with a number of quotes which indicate the kind of passion that people feel. Amos Oz in his tale of love and darkness writes, The city has been destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt again. Jerusalem is an old nymphomaniac who squeezes lover after lover to death before shrugging him off her with a yawn, a black widow who devours her mates while they are still penetrating her. Now, one of the queens of Jerusalem was a young woman by the name of Melisende. We won't go into her scandals and dramas because we're moving straight into the blazer of glory. The part of Fashion by Dad, which is a nod to fashion, where we tell the story of some clothing that ends in tears. The king and queen held court in the Tower of David and its neighbouring palace, while the patriarch's palace was the centre of church affairs. Life for ordinary barons in Outrema, Jerusalem, was probably better than for kings in Europe, where even potentates wore unlaundered wool and lived in bare stone drafty keeps with rough furniture. If few crusader barons could live as grandly as John of Ebelin later in the century, his palace in Beirut reveals the style. Mosaic floors, marbled walls, painted ceilings, fountains and gardens. Even bourgeois downhouses boasted rich carpets, damask wall hangings, delicate faience, carved inlaid tables and porcelain dishes. Not that I know what a delicate faience is. I'll have to look that up and get back to you, dear listener. Back to uh, Montefiore. Uh, Jerusalem combined the rough edges of the frontier town with the luxurious vanities of a royal capital. Even in Jerusalem, the less reputable women, such as the patriarch's mistress, flaunted their jewels and silks to the disapproval of the more respectable. With her 30,000 inhabitants and streams of pilgrims, she was holy city, Christian melting pot and a military headquarters, dominated by war and God. The Franks, men and women, now bathed regularly. There were public baths on Freer Street. The Roman sewerage was still working and it is likely most houses had lavatories. Even the most Islamophobic of the Crusaders had to adapt to the East. At war, the knights wore linen robes and an kefir over their armour to prevent the steel heating up in the sun. At home, knights dressed like the locals in silk burnu and even turbans. Jerusalemite ladies wore long underrobes with a short tunic or long robe coats embroidered with gold thread. Their faces were heavily painted and they were usually veiled in public. Both sexes wore furs in winter, though this luxury was specifically banned for the austere Templars, who personified this capital of Christian holy war. 
The Knights of the Order set the tone. The Templars in their belted and hooded red-crossed mantles, hospitallers in their black mantles with right crosses on the breast. Every day, the 300 Templars clattered out of the stables of Solomon to train outside the city. In the Valley of Kidron, the infantry practised their archery. Soldiers could be seen gambling and rolling dice in the doorways of shops. European harlots were shipped out to service the soldiers of Outrema. Later, the secretary of the Sultan, Saladin, would gleefully describe one such boatload from the Muslim point of view. Lovely Frankleafsh women, foul-fleshed and sinful, appearing proudly in public, ripped open and patched up, lacerated and mended, making love and selling themselves for gold. Calibchian and graceful, like tipsy adolescents, they dedicated as a holy offering what they kept between their thighs. Each trailed the train of her robe behind her, bewitched with her effulgence, swayed like a sapling and longed to lose her robe. I love heavy metal. <laughs> just, just for the record, heavy metal, heavy metal. Not such a huge fan of heavy metal. I love heavy metal. And you just heard German speed metal band Blind Guardian with their track My Precious Jerusalem. Channeling a little bit of Gollum and a little bit of Jerusalem. Uh, the album was Night at the Opera, and the cover of that depicts Gollum, a whole bunch of elves, goblins, orcs, and other characters from Tolkien's Middle-earth, uh, because that's one of the themes in The Night at the Opera. bit slower than their more classic speed metal. They went a little bit uh, religious after that. Well, not so much religious, but a little bit neo-folk, as we have been going here on Fashion by Dad. Uh, Now, just going back to uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore, I'm just going to give you a quick intro to Saladin and then a quick intro to Richard, the Muslim and the Christian, battling over Jerusalem in one of the weirdest and most... Uh, dramatic small wars with big consequences. Saladin was never quite the liberal gentleman superior in manners to the brutish Franks portrayed by Western writers in the 19th century. But by the standards of medieval empire builders, he deserves his attractive reputation. When he gave one of his sons advice about how he had built an empire, he told him, I have only achieved what I have by coaxing people. Hold no grudge against anyone, for death spares nobody. Take care in your relations with people. 
Saladin did not look impressive and lacked vanity when his silken robes were spattered by a courtier riding through a puddle in Jerusalem. Saladin burst out laughing. He never forgot the twists of fate had brought him such success could just as easily be reversed. While his rise had been bloody, he disliked violence, advising his favourite son, Zahia, I warn you against shedding blood, indulging in it and making a habit of it, for blood never sleeps. When Muslim raiders stole a baby from a Frankish woman, she crossed the lines to appeal to Saladin, who moved to tears, immediately had the baby found and returned to its mother. On another occasion, when one of his sons asked to be allowed to kill some Frankish prisoners, he reprimanded him and refused, lest he get a taste for killing. It's nice and dreamy at 25 past five on the 3rd of August, a Tuesday, good people. Get yourselves out of bed, get yourselves ready. I'm entertaining you with some stories of Jerusalem and songs, including that number by Sinead O'Connor from her album, The Lion and the Cobra. That's around the time she shaved her head because the... Record company told her to grow her hair long and wear a dress. That'll learn them. Here on Fashion by Dad, we're reading from Simon Seabag Montefiore's biography of Jerusalem. We've just introduced Saladin, the Muslim, not king. He was a sultan. He was eventually a sultan, but he pulled together the Islamic forces. They'd seen the Second Crusade out. On the 4th of July, 1190, Richard the Lionheart, King of England, and Philip II Augustus, King of France, set out on the Third Crusade to liberate Jerusalem. The 32-year-old Richard had just inherited his father, Henry II's Angevin Empire, England, and half of France. Possessed of abundant vitality, red-haired and athletic, he was as brash and extrovert as Saladin was patient and subtle. He was a man of his time, both a writer of saucy troubadour songs and a pious Christian, who, overcome with his sinfulness, threw himself naked before his clergy and scourged himself with whips. Eleanor of Aquitaine's favourite son showed little interest in women, but the 19th century claim that he was homosexual has been discredited. War was his real love, and he ruthlessly squeezed the English to pay for his crusade, joking, I'd have sold London if there'd been a buyer. 
On June the 8th, 1191, Richard landed and joined the King of France at the siege, where bouts of fighting alternated with interludes of fraternising between the camps. Saladin and his courtiers watched his arrival and were impressed with the great pomp of this mighty warrior and with his passion for war. The battlefield had become a plague-ridden shanty encampment of royal marquees, filthy huts, soup kitchens, markets, bathhouses and brothels. That the prostitutes fascinated the Muslims is evident from the account of Imad, Saladin's secretary, who visited Richard's camp and exhausted even his reservoir of pornographic metaphors as he ogled these singers and coquettes, tinted and painted, blue-eyed with fleshy thighs, who plied a brisk trade, bought the single brought their silver anklets up to touch their golden earrings, invited swords to sheathe, made javelins rise towards shields, gave birds a place to peck with their beaks, caught lizard after lizard in their holes, and guided pens to inkwells. There we have it on Fashion by Dad, where it's half past five on a Tuesday morning. Words by William Blake, music by Elgar, uh, sung by Charlotte Church live in Jerusalem. Now, just imagine how the people of Jerusalem feel about having an English orchestra belting out England's green and pleasant land. Not that Charlotte Church and the British Symphony was the first... English in Jerusalem. We are reading this morning on Fashion by Dad uh, the story of Saladin and Richard. Saladin, the very clever and subtle Muslim who put together a army of uh, Arab tribes who had been fighting among themselves and drove the British, uh, drove the Crusaders out of uh, Jerusalem only to be attacked by Richard the Lionheart, the hairy, red, athletic um, man who clearly uh, loved to fight more than to fuck. He uh, said that he would sell London if there'd be a buyer to fund his crusade. Such a lover of the sword was he. Anyway, Saladin and Richard fought each other up and down the uh, coast of the Levant, basically fought themselves to death. Both of them had um, their generals, their barons in the case of Richard and their emirs in the case of Saladin uh, peeling off, saying, let's get out of here, let's get this over with. Anyway, the fortunes rose and fell, and as Richards fell, Saladin was exuberant, riding out to meet his favourite son, Zahir, kissing him between the eyes and escorting him into Jerusalem, where the prince stayed with his father in the palace of the master of the Hospitallers. 
But both sides were exhausted. Richard was receiving reports that back in England, his brother John was close to open rebellion. If he wished to save his lands, he needed to return home soon. And I might just digress here to mention this is the time of Robin Hood when John was on the throne, portrayed in all the tales of Robin Hood as the evil one. Richard, the good man, was off fighting the good fight in Jerusalem. Back to Simon Montefiore. Encouraged by Richard problems on the 28th of July, Saladin sprang a surprise attack on Jaffa, which he swiftly captured after a bombardment by his mangonels. While Ibn Shaddad was negotiating the surrender, his son Zahir fell asleep on watch. Suddenly, Richard the Lionheart appeared offshore in a scarlet-flagged galley. He had arrived just in time. Some Franks were still holding out. Firing an arbalest crossbow, he waded onto the beach, red-haired, his tunic red, his banner red, without even taking the time to take off his waders and don his armour and wielding a Danish battle axe accompanied by just 17 knights and a few hundred infantry Richard managed to retake the town in a stupendous display of flamboyant shock fighting. Afterward he teased Saladin's minister This sultan of yours is a great man yet how is it that he departed merely because I arrived? I only had my sous boots on and not even my breastplate. Saladin and Safadin were said to have sent Arabian horses to Lionheart as a gift, but such chivalry was often a delaying a tactic, for soon they counter-attack. Richard repulsed them and then challenged the Saracens to single combat. He gallanced he galloped with his lance up and down the ranks, but there were no takers. Saladin adored or Saladin ordered another attack, but his emirs refused. He was so enraged he considered a Zangi-style crucifixion of his mutinous generals. However, he calmed himself and then invited them to share some juicy apricots that had just arrived from Damascus. The king and sultan had fought themselves to a standstill. You and we together are ruined, Richard confided to Saladin. As they negotiated, both the warlords collapsed, desperately ill, their resources and wills utterly exhausted. Here on 4ZZZ, beaming to the world, you might be in the evening hours in Eastern Europe or in the early morning in Western USA. Listen to us on 4ZZZ.org.au Or you might be on 102.1 FM here in Brisbane, one of the insomniac shift workers and vampires catching us before you crawl into bed as the dawn arrives. Or you might be getting up, getting ready for an early commute to work. Or you might just love juxtaposition and oxymorons and genre bending so much that you stay up all night to listen to Fashion by Dad on a Tuesday morning. And this morning we are going to spend an hour flirting a little with the Basques while telling the story of their trade in cod. That's our time for a story time story here on Fashion by Dad in this episode. And that Basque theme will be supported by a mix of genres, folk, rock, hip-hop. 
Uh, we're going to kick the theme off with Juanzo Scalari and La Rude Band, which I note that Wikipedia rudely notes may not be notorious enough to deserve a Wikipedia entry. So the entry that's there, if you're going to look it up, well, actually, I'll put a link on the uh, Insta. Oh, no, you can't put links on Insta, can you? Oh, well, anyway, the name of the band is Juan T-X-O J-U-A-N-T-X-O Scalari as in Scar S-K-A-L-A-R-I So I think um, the entry for them has just got a list of albums between 2001-2008 bit of media associated with them but uh, that didn't convince the Wikipedia editors that they were notorious enough but I notice that they are touring Europe as we speak so I think the individual Juan Sol has joined up with La Rude Band anyway, they've just played a major concert in a major capital city, I can't remember which one, I didn't write it down in my little notes here they are Juan saw and Rudy not dead. No ha muerto quien diga lo contrario miente. En ti sigue vivo Rudy no dead. En la brecha estás espíritu combatiente y sigues a buen ritmo. And on 4ZZZ, you are listening to Fashion by Dad with me, Jeff Ebbs. And it's time for a story time story here on Fashion by Dad. And today our story comes from Mark Kulansky. A biography of the fish that changed the world. The book is called Cod and is an accompaniment to other great books of his. One is called Salt. And the other is called Basque. I mean, he's written more books than those three, but those three are related in ways that you, dear reader, are about to find out. Sorry, dear listener, I called you dear reader. That's because I'm looking at a book. I thought of that. Anyway, Cod, Biography of a Fish, Part 1, A Fish Tale. A quote from Emile Zola, The Belly of Paris, 1873. Salt cod spreading itself before the drab, hefty shopkeepers, making them dream of departure, of travel. And then another quote from Miguel de Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote in the 17th century, 1605 to 1616. He said it must be Friday, the day that he could not sell anything except servings of a fish known in Castile as Pollock or in Andalusia as salt cod. A medieval fisherman is said to have hauled up a three-foot-long cod, which was common enough at the time. And the fact that the cod could talk was not especially surprising. But what was astonishing was that it spoke an unknown language. It spoke Basque. 
This Basque folktale shows not only the Basque attachment to their orphan language, indecipherable to the rest of the world, but also their tie to the Atlantic god, Gaddis Hua, a fish that has never been found in Basque or even Spanish waters. The Basques are enigmatic. They have lived in what is now the northwest corner of Spain and a nick of the French southwest for longer than history records. And not only is the origin of their language unknown, but the origin of the people themselves remains a mystery also. According to one theory, these rosy-cheeked, dark-haired, long-nosed people were the original Iberians, driven by invaders to this mountainous corner between the Pyrenees, the Cantabrian Sierra and the Bay of Biscay. They may have been indigenous to this area. They graze on sheep on impossibly steep green slopes of mountains that are thrilling in their rare rugged beauty. They sing their own songs and write their own literature in their own language, Yuskira. Possibly Europe's oldest living language, Yuskira is one of only four European languages, the others are Estonian, Finnish and Hungarian, that are not in the Indo-European family. They also have their own sports. Most notably, Jai Alai, and even their own hat, the Basque Beret, which is bigger than any other beret. So there, with that uh, little introduction to the Basque people, we will now go to the track Basque Country by the folk band Coronzi. And if you had a look at the YouTube clip of Coronzi singing Basque Country, you would see the large Basque beret that Mark Kurlansky has just described. Here they are, Coronzi with Basque Country. And you just heard Kronzi with their folk tune, Basque Country. Ah, folk music, not as bad as it sounds. Not only are the Basques shepherds, they're also a seafaring people noted for their success in commerce. During the Middle Ages, when Europeans ate great quantities of whale meat, the Basques travelled to distant unknown waters and brought back whale. They were able to travel such distances because they had found huge schools of cod 
and salted their catch, giving them a nutritious food supply that would not spoil on long voyages. Basques were not the first to cure cod. Centuries earlier, the Vikings had travelled from Norway to Iceland, to Greenland, to Canada, and it's not a coincidence that this is the exact range of the Atlantic cod. In the 10th century, Thorwald and his wayward son, Eric the Red, having been thrown out of Norway for murder, travelled to Iceland, where they killed more people and were again expelled been watching Vikings, you know that story. About the year 985, they put to sea on the black lava shore of Iceland with a small crew on a little open ship. Even in midsummer, when the days are almost without nightfall, the sea there is grey and kicks up white cats. But with sails and oars, the small band made it to the land of glaciers and rocks, where the water was treacherous with icebergs that glowed a robin's egg blue. In the spring and summer, chunks broke off the glaciers, crashed into the sea with a sound like thunder that echoed in the fjords and sent out huge waves. Eric, hoping to colonise this land, tried to enhance its appeal by naming it Greenland. Almost 1,000 years later, New England whalers would sing, Oh, Greenland is a barren place, a place that bears no green, where there's ice and snow and whale fishes blow, but daylight seldom seen. There are a bit more folk music here on Fashion by Dad as we hear the story of Cod as told by Mark Kalansky, because, dear listener, this is the time for a story time story. Our next little taste of Basque music from an Echegoyan with Hego. Another Basque choir in their big Basque berets singing Hegoch with an Echegoyan running along on a beach and climbing on top of mountains and ancient sculptures in a red dress. Here on Fashion by Dad, we're telling the story of the Basque's relationship with Cod. Because it's time for a story time story here on Fashion by Dad. Until the 20th century refrigerator, spoiled food had been a chronic curse and severely limited trade in many products, especially fish. When the Basque whalers applied to cod the salting techniques they were using on the whale, they discovered a particularly good marriage 
because the cod is virtually without fat and so if salted and dried well would rarely spoil. It would outlast whale, which is red meat, and it would outlast herring, a fatty fish that became a popular salted item in the northern countries in the Middle Ages. Not only did cod last longer than other salted fish, but it tasted better too. Once dried or salted or both, and then properly restored through soaking, this fish presents a flaky flesh that to many tastes, even in the modern age of refrigeration, is far superior to the bland white meat of fresh cod. Catholicism gave the Basques their great opportunity. The medieval church imposed fast days on which sexual intercourse and the eating of flesh were forbidden. But eating cold foods was permitted. Because fish came from water, it was deemed cold, as were waterfowl and whale. But meat was considered hot food. The Basques were getting richer every Friday, but where was all this cod coming from? The Basques, who had never even said where they came from, kept their secret. By the 15th century, this was no longer easy to do because cod had become widely recognised as a highly profitable commodity and commercial interests around Europe were looking for new cod grounds. There were cod off Iceland and the North Sea, but the Scandinavians who had been fishing cod in those waters for thousands of years had not seen the Basques. The British, who had been fishing for cod well offshore since Roman times, did not run across Basque fishermen even in the 14th century when British fishermen began venturing up to the Icelandic waters. The Bretons, who followed the Basques, began to talk of a land across the sea. Then in 1497, five years after Columbus first stumbled across the Caribbean while searching for a westward route to the spice-producing lands of Asia, Giovanni Caboto sailed from Bristol, not in search of the Bristol secret, but in hopes of finding the route to Asia that Columbus had missed. Caboto was a Genovese who is remembered by the English name John Cabot because he undertook this voyage for Henry VII of England. The English being in nice north, the English being in the north, were far from the spice route, and so paid exceptionally high prices for spices. Cabot reasoned correctly that the British Crown and the Bristol merchants would be willing to finance a search for the northern spice route. In June, after only 35 days at sea, Cabo found land, though it was not Asia. It was a vast rocky coastline that was ideal for salting and drying fish by a sea that was teeming with cod. Cabo reported on cod as evidence of the wealth of this newfound land, Newfoundland, which he claimed for England. 37 years later, Jacques Hattier arrived and was credited with discovering the mouth of St. Lawrence. He planted a cross on the Gaspare Peninsula and claimed it for all France. He also noted the presence of 1,000 Basque fishing vessels. But the Basques, not wanting to keep a good secret, had never claimed it for anyone. 
The codfish lays a thousand eggs, the homely hen lays one. The codfish never cackles to tell you what she's done. And so we scorn the codfish while the humble hen we prize, which only goes to show you that it pays to advertise. Now here on Fashion by Dad, we have run short of Basque music. And so we're going to go to another combination of traditional and the modern. The one that actually set me on this journey of folk metal, symphonic metal, neo-folk, and the other genre-bending genres that we play here on Fashion by Dad. This is Mongolian folk metal band The Who with their latest number, Sad but true. H-U to you. The Who hailing from Mongolia with their throat singing, horse head fiddle and other traditional instruments. Playing a particularly patriotic brand of folk metal. Long way from Basque, but I've got one more story to tell you about the Basques. This is not from Mark Karolansky's Cod but from uh, J.K. Gibson Graham's post-capitalist politics. Now, they are telling the stories of different approaches to the economy, the the diverse economy, or queering the economy as their approach, which we won't go into here, that's better suited for a Thursday morning or a Wednesday at midday. Um, But they are telling the story of the Mondragon intentional economy, which was, um, well, I'll read. I'm reading from A Post-Capitalist Politics by J.K. Gibson Graham. 
which is a pair of people with one name. Interesting story in itself. We are not alone, of course, in finding inspiration in the story of Mondragon's vigorous expansion in the face of both the historical persecution of the Basque people in Spain and a present-day economic orthodoxy that militates against collective experiments. From a spatial base in the late 1940s that was divided by ideological differences with a physical infrastructure destroyed or depleted by the civil war, the Mondragon community under the guiding philosophy of Catholic priest Father Arismendi Rallieta has perhaps built the most successful and well-recognised complex of worker-owned industrial retail service and support cooperatives in the world. Today, the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation is famed for its more than 30,000 worker owners, its flexibility and longevity, its cutting-edge technology and its innovations in worker participation. The Mondragon Commons involves over 100 cooperatives, including a bank capitalised by the deposited surplus of the MCC, that's the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation, and mandated to initiate and cultivated more co-ops. So, there's much more information in that book about the Mondragon Cooperative and lots of discussion of what works and what doesn't work and why and why not it does work. Uh, my point here on Fashion by Dad is that the Basques are not some quaint historical relic, and even though Wikipedia might not find their music highly notorious, that's really due to the lack of contribution by English-speaking editors writing about Basque music, um, the Basque people are in fact a powerful force calling for independence in Spain and uh, dominating recent elections. So that's it for the Basques on this episode of Fashion by Dad. For Triple Z, when things get a little bit funky. And here on the Fuzz Station, you are listening to Fashion by Dad for Triple Z with me, Jeff Ebbs. We just heard a whole bunch of tales about Jerusalem, specifically about the Outrima period and the Third Crusade, where Richard the Lionheart won by a whisker. Going to leave Jerusalem now and head for Broken Hill in outback Australia. Nothing to do with battles between hairy red Englishmen and smooth-talking Arabs, but between an Afghan hound and a chook. And no, it is not the famous Pharaoh Rooster or the infamous Rooster Park in northern New South Wales. It is a chook that came from a film set. So your dear dad here on Fashion by Dad was in his youth a actor in a student film known as The Landlady from a Roald Dahl story. And for whatever reason, the director had a pair of chickens pecking in the 
warmth of the lights in the landlady's lounge room just before she poisoned the young tenant that is your good host here on Fashion by Dad. Yes, I died for the sake of film and I've come back to talk to you this morning. So that is how the chook came to me. I took both chickens home. One didn't make it. One did. Turned into a rooster. Used to go gardening with me. Followed me everywhere. Became very dedicated to its dear pseudo-dadda. And in the fashion by dad fashion, I uh, took it on a trip to Broken Hill uh, with my girlfriend and her sister at the time who had an Afghan hound. Actually, I don't think the sister came. I think the Afghan hound did. The Afghan hound, of course, loved to eat chickens and used to spend a lot of time yawning with its mouth very close to the chicken in the back seat of the old HD Holden. But the rooster realised that the Afghan hound was not going to close its jaws because every time it got a little bit close, I gave it a little bit of a whack on the nose and said, stop, enough. So the rooster decided it had it all over the Afghan hound and it started to pinch its food and generally boss it around, which was very, very depressing for the Afghan hound. So I had a depressed hound and a dominant rooster uh, with me on the road to Broken Hill. And we got as far as the Broken Hill Cemetery when the rooster started to rummage in the bark of the gum trees planted around the cemetery, finding all manner of grubs, insects and other things, life provided by the presence of trees. And if you know that area, the surrounding country is mostly salt bush, less than a metre tall, probably about half a metre tall which is less than a metre tall. And that salt bush uh, grows in that arid climate and potentially salty soil. So it was quite obvious that the presence of a few trees provided sufficient food for my rooster to go a pecking. Anyway, this story becomes more complex and interesting as we head north from Broken Hill, about 150 kilometres through Silverton, the film set, to a little, lonely little place where there is a old copper mine. And we'll come back to that after we hear from Sushi and the Banshees with their version, well, it's not a version of Jerusalem, it's their song, Israel.
The land of Israel is the centre of the world. Jerusalem is the centre of the land. The Holy Temple is the centre of Jerusalem. The Holy of Holies is the centre of the Holy Temple. The Holy Ark is the centre of the Holy of Holies and the foundation stone from which the world established is before the Holy Ark. Midrash Tanuma from Kedoshim. Chapter 10. Uh, you just heard Suji and the Banshees with their track Israel from 1980. A long time ago now. 41 years. Uh, because I am your dad here on Fashion by Dad, I'm old enough to remember that. So we've got 10 minutes to go here on Fashion by Dad this morning. Um, I'm regaling you with tales of the Chuk and the Afghan hand in the desert. We've gone to Broken Hill where the Chuk has feasted upon grubs and insects in the bark of trees. We're surrounded by salt bush. Uh, we've gone north to the town of Silverton and beyond and are exploring a copper mine. Now, as we heard on Echo Radio last midday at Wednesday, the copper mine is being operated by the great-grandsons of the chef of the original town. It was the last town built of stone. It was the last mining town in Australia built of stone. It was built by Cornish miners, and it was the last mine that was built in the, or mined in the traditional Cornish way of not going for the richest ore first, but going for the furthest ore first. So they went to the end of the load and started to work backwards so that if the mine collapsed, it did not collapse behind them, it collapsed in front of them. And they built the... Uh, mine very strongly, supporting it as they went. Thus the great-grandson of the chef of the town uh, told us, among other things, he'd shown us the foundations of the original stone buildings, the bank, uh, the church and so on, which were only just visible in that stony salt bush covered desert and as he was explaining how well built the mine was by these Cornish miners he pointed to the uprights holding the rocky roof of the mine in which we walked and these uprights were in fact tree trunks they were so big you couldn't put your arms around them and they were covered in bark having just taken my chook and Afghan hound through Broken Hill and watched the chook feed upon the only trees we had seen since we left the Flinders Ranges, I started to wonder where did these underground trees come from? And I said to our guide, where did these trees come from? And he said to me, this mine did not close because it ran out of ore. This mine closed because it ran out of timber. It was the last mine in Australia to smelt the ore on site so that it was easier to transport. And when it closed, they were dragging red gums into the mine by donkey from 200 miles away. So 200 miles, about 360, 300 20, 320 kilometres, so there's a circle 640 kilometres in diameter, denuded 
of red gums. So not only did they burn the timber to smelt the copper from the rock that they dug out of the ground, they chucked the ore, the um, freshly um, smelted ore, the ingots of copper, not purified, but smelted out of the rock, onto a paddle steamer which went down the Darling, which was then full of water, not the current dry riverbed that it is now, on a paddle steamer, and on the paddle steamer they put four trees, four fully grown red gum trees. One of them was burned on the way down to the mouth of the Murray, where the uh, ingots of copper were loaded onto other ships. Not sure whether they went around the corner to Adelaide or not. Three trees were burned on the way back up against the current, bringing goods to the little towns along the way, such as Broken Hill, such as this mine on its own in nowhere. It doesn't even have a name for town now. So we think of that area as a desert because the trees were burned in the name of shipping metal back to Mother England. Now, here on Fashion by Dad, we're running out of time. I've, um, there is a fantastic track with Jerusalem, or dedicated to Jerusalem, called Jerusalem by Master KG. Now, this is the track that led to the Jerusalem Dance Challenge, which swept Australia last summer and the world tiny bit earlier. So Master KG is Carl Gellor Morgi, professionally known as Master KG, South African musician, born and raised in Tsanin, uh, debuted with a studio album called Skeleton Move, won him a whole lot of awards, including Best Artist at the Afrima Award in the African Electro category. He's also known as the pioneer of the Bolo Bidu dance. And I don't know, but I suspect the Bolo Bidu dance is the dance that caused the Jerusalem dance phrase to go wild. Here is Master KG with Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem,